Right, let's, let's just pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we ask you now to, to teach us and to show us what we need to know. Lord, thank you that you've given us a book with everything in it. Lord, it's so simple. It's so clear. Oh, and Father, we just want your word to be honoured amongst us. Lord, we want to know what you say. Lord, we want to be obedient to your directions. Lord, we want nothing of the ideas of man. Lord, we want only what you've revealed in your word. And Father, we pray that you'll just really send your Holy Spirit, that he might reveal the truth of Jesus to us. Oh, Father, we just submit to you now. And I pray that the truth that we turn to tonight will just go into all our hearts, Lord. And I just pray that it will be crystal clear. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> right, well, last time we were um, looking at church government, and it's the first of a whole series of talks within this series that we're doing. And uh, you'll remember that we saw last time that the church is to be governed by elders. All right? And we saw as well that with the various terminology, we saw that an elder or presbyter, same word, equals a bishop or guardian or overseer, same words, equals a pastor or shepherd. That they are just different words for the same people. The leadership within the church. And you'll remember that we saw certain fundamental things about that eldership. We saw that it had to be plural. We saw that it had to be co-equal, no big chief. And we saw the reasons for that. We saw that it had to be indigenous. You don't plonk leaders down on people from the outside. They're raised up from among the people that they're going to lead. And we saw as well that eldership is male. All right. Now, what we're going to turn to tonight, right, we know who leads the church. It's a group of elders. Now we've got to turn to the, questions, the question of what is the qualification for an elder? How do you know if someone is able to be an elder? How do you know if someone is ready to be an elder? And in actual fact, the Bible gives some very, very detailed teaching indeed about the qualifications that have to be seen in someone's life before they could be made an elder. And we're going to look at two passages of scripture. One is in the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and the other is in the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And we're going to read them, and we're going to see that they are precisely to do with this whole subject. Well, we'll take the Timothy one first. So if you go to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, and if you find chapter 3. Now, as you know, I use the RSV, and uh, I make no apology for that. I won't recommend the RSV, but because I work from the original Greek, I know where the RSV is wrong, so it doesn't matter. But the point is that because we've got different translations, you'll find that as we go through these two lists, they're in slightly different orders in, in, in different translations of the Bible. But don't worry if you get lost, because we are going to cover each point in great detail. 
Uh, also, we're going to be doing a lot of Greek tonight, awful lot of Greek words to look into, because here in these lists, we've got the same problem that we come back to again and again and again. The English language is often not strong enough to convey what the Greek is saying. And I think you'll find that as we go through it, I'll be telling you what the Greek word means, and you'll be looking at the English word translated from the Greek, and you'll think, that's a bit wet. All right. This is why you've got to get into the original Greek. Now, let me just say in regards to the Greek, firstly, I can certainly promise you that the actual Greek words I'm going to tell you are correct. I can also assure you that the meanings of the Greek words that I'm going to explain are correct. But you must remember that I've admitted before I have not the foggiest idea how to pronounce them. All right, because I don't speak Greek. So therefore, you just have to put up with my pronunciation as it comes. But nevertheless, 1 Timothy and chapter 3, and we're going to start reading from verse 2. Well, let's, let's start reading from verse 1. The saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, remember bishop is just another word for an elder, different aspects of his function, he desires a noble task. Now, a bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, dignified, hospitable, an apt teacher, no drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and no lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, or he may fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Right, now we're going to take that apart and look at each individual point. Now the first thing we read is this. A bishop must be above reproach. Now, that's, that's quite a difficult little thing, isn't it? Because it, what do you mean by above reproach? Uh, some people think of above reproach in terms of absolutely perfect. But of course the truth is, if that was the qualification for being an elder, there wouldn't be any elders around, would there? Because no one is perfect. And that what I want to show you is that here, when Paul says a bishop must be above reproach, it's the ensuing list that defines what he means. So that when Paul says here, a bishop, an elder, has got to be above reproach, he then defines what he means by being above reproach. And this actual phrase in the Greek, that he must be above reproach, in the Greek, the Greek word is an epileptos. All right. Now, a in the Greek is a negative. And here the verb is epilambano, which means to lay hold of. And that what you've got here is nothing to lay hold of. Now, the idea of it is that above reproach is fundamentally that when you've got an elder, there must be no one around who's got anything on them. Can you see? This is the point. Nothing that somebody can have on them by way of some kind of smear. Just pop over into Titus in the parallel passage, and we'll be reading this later. But you'll find here that um, in, chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 6, he starts off, if any man is blameless. 
all right, if any man is blameless. And that Greek word is anenkletos. And again, it means I, a negative, and enkaleo, which means to call in. And it means that there's nothing that that person has that he could possibly be called to account for in a negative way. And that what we've got here is that Paul's saying, fundamentally, that an elder must be someone where no one has got the goods on them because there's no goods about them to be had. Can you see what I'm saying? No dark secrets, nothing going on that people know about that if it came to the surface, it could besmirch the fact that he's an elder. And I think that the best word to put here is this, unblackmailable. That is what Paul is getting at, unblackmailable. It doesn't matter how far you dig into that elder's life, you won't find anything there that could, you know, sort of blow up into some big scandal or anything like that, or people pointing the finger and saying, well, there's no way he should be an elder because of this, that, or the other. So generally, that is what Paul is saying. And this being above reproach or blameless, he defines it in more detail in the ensuing list. So now let's go through that list in the 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, the first thing he says is the, well, the first thing he says is above reproach. The second thing, he says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Now, there's a couple of things there. Is Paul saying that if an elder must be the husband of one wife, is he saying, therefore, that an elder must be married? Is that what it means? Well, I want to show you that it isn't. We know that two very simple reasons. The guy who's writing this letter, Paul, he was single, because he says so. And elsewhere in the letter, the bloke he's writing to, Timothy, he was single as well. How do I know Timothy was single? One of the things that Paul said to Timothy, a bit of personal advice, he said, flee fornication. Now, if Timothy had been married, he'd have said flee adultery. Is he? And one of the themes running through the letter in Timothy, Timothy was a young man, and it's flee youthful lusts, all right? So we know that both Paul and Timothy, as it happens as well, were both single. So therefore, this thing that an elder must be the husband of one wife, it's not saying what it seems to be, saying that an elder must be married. That wasn't the point. So if that wasn't the point, what was the point? Well, the point was this. The early church had a massive problem with polygamy. In the world at that point, many, many cultures, it was absolutely accepted for a man to have loads and loads of wives, more than one wife, all right? Now, of course, the Christians upheld the fact that it was wrong to have more than one wife. You could only have one wife, all right? But you see, the problem was this. If you had someone who was converted in the early church, maybe they had four wives. Now, they've committed a sin in having more than one wife. But what do you say to them? Do you say, right, mate, you've got to choose three that have to be dumped? You see, see the problem? In order to repent of having more than one wife, did the early converts have to actually divorce three wives? Well, of course, the answer is absolutely not because that would have caused more heartbreak than it would have actually helped. Can you see? Because what about the three women who'd have been dumped? And of course, the point was that the principle that Paul said in the churches was, look, stay as you are. So the early church had lots of people in the churches who had more than one wife. 
all right? They shouldn't have done, but they did have, but they couldn't undo it because to undo that situation meant dumping, you know, three or four of their wives. So the early church had people in it who had more than one wife. But in order to uphold the fact that God's will is that you only have one wife, therefore, people in the church with more than one wife were not eligible to become elders. You see the point? Because if the people saw elders in the churches with more than one wife, that would be too close to seeming that the church was condoning having more than one wife, you see. The problem was polygamy was rampant. And the early church was standing for monogamy, one wife. That reminds me of a little story I heard once about a young boy and he was asking his English class a question about this. And he stood up and he said, in order to define the word and answer the question, he said, monotony is the state of being married to the same woman for your whole life. <laughs> and that was the problem that the early church had, all right? So to set an example, to keep the standard high, that it's one woman and one man and that's it. The elders were not, people were not allowed to become elders unless they only had the one wife, all right? So therefore, that is what Paul is getting at there. Elders had to be absolutely above reproach in that area of their lives, all right? And I think that as well, that there's a tremendously strong argument as well. I mean, we know that there are people today who get converted, they've been divorced, remarried, no problem whatsoever. God's grace covers that. But on the other hand, we don't, the fact that God's grace can cover that, we don't want to be seen almost saying, oh, well, of course, if marriage goes wrong, gets, you know, get divorced, God's grace will cover it, marry again. And I think there's a very strong argument based on the same principle that also if there were people in the church who were remarried after being illegitimately divorced, I'm not talking about someone whose partner was unfaithful to them because they have every right to start again, do you see? But where you've got people who have been divorced for the wrong reasons in their past, and they may be married again in the Lord, I wouldn't be happy about those people being made elders. Because can you see the signals it's putting out to the world are wrong? And it's exactly the same situation that the early church faced. So for them, it was the problem of people having more than one wife. Today, we've got the problem of there's so much divorce, even amongst the Lord's people, that we would have to say that they must be the husband of one wife, i.e. not someone who's been divorced for the wrong reasons. I want to emphasize that. I'm not talking about a man whose wife went off with somebody and ditched him. That man has every right to divorce her and to remarry. That would not be a bar to eldership. But I'm talking about people who have ended up divorced and remarried when they had no grounds for it. Can you see, maybe they just didn't get on with each other, so they thought, all right, okay, let's end it. So therefore, we wouldn't want to see people who are elders if they have illegitimate divorce behind them. Um, but in regards to this husband of one wife, obviously it goes without saying that a man who has been widowed and remarried, that is no problem whatsoever, all right? But that is the main thrust of the fact that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Now, the next thing that Paul says is that an elder must be temperate, 
temperate. Now the Greek word is nephalios, and its literal meaning is free from the influence of intoxicants. All right? Be it booze, be it psychedelic drugs, although they didn't have too much of a problem you know, with that in the early church. What it's getting across is that an elder must be someone who is not in any way under the influence of being intoxicated, be it through drink. But there's another way you can be intoxicated as well. What's coming across here is that an elder has got to be clear-headed the whole time. An elder cannot afford to have bouts of clouded judgment, is he? Because he's on duty 24 hours a day. So that we've got here the fact that an elder has got to be someone who is clear-headed, not someone with clouded judgment. Now, how does clouded judgment come about? Well, metaphorically, we know you can be drunk with wine literally, but metaphorically, people in the church they get intoxicated mentally or emotionally by doctrinal fads. They get intoxicated by the latest Christian craze. And you think how many times you've seen this in a church, the leaders pick up the latest craze, the latest book, and suddenly the whole church is in upheaval because the elders are merrily learning all this new stuff, churning it out to the sheep before they've even had a chance to think, is this even scriptural? Can you see? And these people are unbalanced. The church never knows what they're going to get laid on them next. Can you see? Because some people, they're not clear in their thinking. They're not emotionally stable. And therefore, they can be all over the place getting carried away by whatever the latest Christian craze is. So it's got to be someone who is clear-headed, not someone who's given to having their judgment clouded. In other words, a cool head. An elder has got to have a cool head on his shoulders. He's got to be stable and he's got to be temperamental. That is what's coming across in this word nephalius, translated in my Bible as temperate. The next thing, Paul says he's got to be sensible. Now, this is where the English rather lets itself down because a lot of these words are almost you know, interchangeable, but in the Greek it's very specific. This word translated sensible, sophron, and it comes from two different Greek words. It comes from sozo, which is the verb to save. That is the word used for our salvation. It means to save or deliver. And the other word it comes from is phren, which is the Greek word for the mind. All right. It's got to be someone, we've already seen, that they've got to have a clear head, all right, but they've got to have a, 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 a rescued and a delivered mind. There are many, many afflictions that can come upon the mind. I'm not talking about mental illness or anything like that. But can you see, an elder has got to be someone whose mind is absolutely clear, absolutely sound. It's got, he's got to be someone who can be logical. And the reason for that is because the main guideline in an elder's life is the Word of God. And the Word of God is clear, systematic, and logical. 
So can you see someone who hasn't trained their mind all over the place is never going to be able to take in the Word of God in the way that he should do and then be able to lead people in what it says. So in that sense, he's got to be sensible. He's got to be very, very stable intellectually so that he can all the time be testing everything coolly, calmly, rationally, logically against the word of God without emotion or, you know, sort of like mental gymnastics getting in the way. Right, number five, an elder must be dignified. Dignified, what does that mean? Greek word here, kosmios, and it comes from the verb kosmio, which means to adorn. And the Greek word kosmos actually means an adornment. Now, what's interesting is that this was the Greek word that came to denote God's entire universe. And what it's meaning is that it means to arrange in a harmonious order. And of course, when you look at the universe, the cosmos, what we see is this incredible machine running in a harmonious order. That is the meaning behind that word. And that what it's saying here is that an elder, in regards to his life, he must have a life that is in harmonious order. His life must be stable. It is no use having someone who's chaotic, someone who's all over the place. Can you see? You know when you meet someone who's all over the place, and you know when you meet someone who's stable. An elder must be someone who is stable. He must not be someone who lives according to mood, because mood is unstable. And isn't it dreadful when you get church leaders that you might phone them up with a problem? And if they're, if they're high, fantastic, they'll give you all the love, all the help you need, but if they're on a downer, they'll make you feel worse. Can you see? An elder cannot be someone who's living according to mood because he must be living according to the truth of God's word. Also, he mustn't be someone who's living according to changing circumstances. Is he? Again, there are people, if everything's going their way, no problem. You can turn to them any time, day or night, you can count on them. But if things start to go wrong in their circumstances, and that happens to all of us, if things start to go wrong, they're suddenly not available to help anyone, can you see? Because they're all over the place because things are going wrong for them. An elder has got to be someone who, regardless of his mood, and regardless of whether things are going great or whether things are going abysmally for him, nevertheless, his life is stable, his life is in order, because it's not based on circumstances, it's not based on emotions, it is based on the teaching of the Word of God. Dignified, define it like this, a consistent dependability of character. Now, if we're talking about elders in the church, doesn't that make sense? I mean, you know, doesn't it have to be that way? No use having people who aren't dependent in their character. They've got to have a consistent dependability of character. Right, number six, they've got to be hospitable. Now, what's the Greek word for that? Philoxenos. Again, from two other words, philos, loving, it's one of the Greek words for love, and xenos, a stranger. And here, hospitality, the Greek word is literally a love 
of strangers. An elder has got to be someone who has a love of strangers. Now, what is this saying? It's saying that he's got to be a welcoming person. Isn't it useless in a church when newcomers get left on their tod? I mean, the times that Blinger and I have gone along to fellowships that we don't know, no, no one's spoken to us. Now, we shrug our shoulders and we leave. I mean, it's no skin off our nose. But what if we were in desperate trouble? What if we were seeking the Lord? Ah, can you see? And an elder has got to be someone who is all the time ready to bring in, for instance, newcomers and befriend them and to make them welcome. Now, obviously, all of us are to do this. I mean, I'm not saying that it's down to the elders to welcome new people into fellowship. All of us have got to be doing that. But an elder has got to be someone that it's in his heart. He's not doing this because it's his duty, but it's in his heart to all the time be looking out to see if anyone is being left out. Is there a newcomer here? If there is, has someone got onto them? If they haven't, then the elders will make sure they're there. Can you see that attitude of all the time embracing people and welcoming them in? But you see, in order to be hospitable, because that is the meaning of the word that I've just said, it means that an elder has also got to be someone with a friendly, easygoing air and character. You see, you can't be a welcoming person if you are not someone who God has already turned into a kind of a friendly, easygoing air of, you know, easy to get along with. That goes without saying. It's vital that church leaders are easy to get to know. And it's vital that they are easy to get along with. They need to be relaxed people. Not in any way officious. You've, you've all been to fellowships where the leaders are officious. They're affected. Can you see, they're standoffish. They can't, they can't be normal with you. They, they, you know, they've all the time, they, they're all the time in elder mode, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> now, that is the very thing that elders should not be. That is the opposite of being hospitable. You can't welcome people into your heart if you haven't learned how to get along with people. How to welcome them into your heart. And it's, it's like, really, what it boils down to is that I think that in the kingdom of God, this is one of the greatest failings amongst church leaders. This is one area of, you know, sort of where people get up into leadership and they abysmally fail on this. Now, if someone doesn't pass this, there's no way they can be an elder. Can you see? Because they become unapproachable. Now, can you see, this is the very sinful attitude of heart that has given us priests and ministers. <laughs> now, we firmly knocked priests and ministers on their head, didn't we, a couple of weeks back. Can you see, this is where the professionalism comes in. There is no professionalism in the body of Christ. It's not the elders there and the people there. It is not an us and them situation at all. Elders cannot be people who are wooden. They cannot be people who are socially affected, who are personally awkward, like difficult characters. Some of the most difficult characters I've met have been leaders in a Christian church. No one knows how to get on with them. Easy. No one. Long discussions in the church. How on earth do we tell our elder this? 
Do you see what I mean? Rather than being able to knock on the door and got a few minutes, yeah, come in, let's get the kettle on. Can you see, feeling absolutely at home with them. It's tremendously important. Elders have got to be that type of person. I've got another phrase for that, hospitable. And we're gonna see this in far more detail in later studies. Elders have got, an, an elder must be one of the lads. If an elder isn't one of the lads, he's not ready to be an elder. As simple as that. Right, number seven. Paul says he must be an apt teacher. Didactikos, I think, or something like that. Didactikos. That's what I've written down. I don't know if that's how you actually pronounce it. It means skilled in teaching. Now, it doesn't mean that every elder has got to have the ministry of being a Bible teacher. That would be silly. I think we're all agreed on that, because yeah, the Bible is quite clear that not all elders are Bible teachers. That's a quite separate thing. But nevertheless, elders have got to be skilled in teaching. Now, what does that mean? I think there are three elements to that. Number one, it means that an elder must know the Bible and understand its doctrine well. We really have no time here for this idea that the Bible is obscure. Do you know what I mean? That it's full of esoteric doctrines that all we can do is argue about and just hope somewhere someone's got it right, but we'd never have any way of knowing who. No way. The Bible has been given to us to understand. I'm not now saying that any one person or even any one church can understand all of it. I'm not saying that either. But I'm saying that an elder must know the Bible and understand its doctrine well and must also be all the time growing into new and deeper understanding of the Bible. Can you see? Not just having reached a point where, well, now I've got a pretty good understanding of the Bible, I think I'll leave it there and put my feet up. That's no good. Got to be someone who already knows the Bible very, very well, but is moving on all the time, discovering deeper aspects of its truth. That's the first point. The second point, an elder must be someone who is able to explain its teachings clearly and intelligently, at least on a one-to-one -one basis. There's no requirement for every elder to be able to take public, you know, Bible studies. I mean, there are some people who are marvellous elders, absolutely qualified for elders, but if you ask them to actually preach, they'd have a heart attack. You'd be looking for another elder. There's no requirement for that, because a lot of an elder's work is on a one-to-one -one basis. So the point is, an elder must be someone who understands the teaching of the Bible himself and is all the time growing in that understanding, but is also able to explain the teaching of the Bible clearly and intelligently, at least on a one-to-one -one basis. And the third element is this, and this is tremendously important, and this is the element that gets left out, and we'll be back to this in more detail later, and it's this, an elder must be able to spot false teaching quickly and be able to demonstrate from the Bible why it is false teaching and what the teaching should be. Is he? Not just to say that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, but to say why it's wrong and how it could be right. 
That is tremendously important. Remember, we saw last time that one aspect of the elder's work is bishop, guardian. Do you remember? We saw that the Greek word can mean guardian because he is protecting the church from error. So that's the third aspect, and that is very, very important indeed. Right, number eight, kind of speaks for itself, no drunkard. Don't think any of us are going to find any controversy in that. Peroinos is a Greek word, and it literally means tarrying at wine. And it means someone who's got a problem with drink. Someone who has a problem with drink cannot be an elder. Someone who used to have a problem with drink can be, but someone who has got a problem with drink cannot be an elder, obviously, you know, for reasons we've already seen. Right, number nine, not violent. Again, pretty obvious. The Greek word here is plectes, not violent. And strange, uh, interestingly enough, we get our Greek word plectrum. Now, you have seen what my plectrum has been doing to my guitar over the last weeks, haven't you? <laughs> and this word, not violent, or plectes, it means... Um, a striker, it means hitting out. And at its rock bottom level, an elder isn't going to hit you. <laughs> you know, I mean, sort of like if you haven't understood his teaching or something. You know, that, that he's not going to be someone who's got a, a problem with temper. So, not violent, not someone who's likely to lash out in anger. That would totally disqualify someone from eldership. So, not violent, but gentle, but gentle. Epikes. And epikes means fair and moderate in approach. So a fair-mindedness, wanting the truth, and moderate, a middle-of-the-road man. I'm not talking about a compromiser, but a moderate, i.e. not OTT. You know, some Christians, they go OTT, get them on their bandwagon and they're OTT. Elder can't afford to be OTT. So going to be fair, moderate in his approach in all things. And here's the main point, considerate of the feelings of others. We must all the time realise that in our interaction with other people, we can hurt and destroy them. Now, this doesn't mean that an elder is going to hold back on the truth and compromise it. Of course he's not. But the point is that he's not going to plough people into the ground. He's not going to railroad them. Can you see? Tremendously important that this gentleness is there in the eldership, all the time taking into account the feelings of other people. And what that means is this. An elder, as we are going to see in more detail in a later study, an elder is a man who knows that there is a time when he needs to get tough, and we're going to see that. But he will not be tougher than he needs to be. Can you see the difference? There's a time when you need to be tough, but you've got to know the minimum toughness that's required and not go over that, all right. That is the burden in the Greek language for this thing about gentle. Right, number 11, not quarrelsome, amakos, and it means contentious. The literal meaning is not fighting. Amakos, ai, that's the negative in the Greek, and makai is the Greek word to fight, and it literally means not fighting. Now, you sometimes meet people, they've got a fight on. Can you see? They're probably not sure who it's with, but you know when you've met a fighter, don't you? And someone who's quarrelsome is always on the lookout for a good old argument, isn't he? 
You know what I mean? I'm not talking about debate. Debate is important. Debate has its place. But I'm talking about people who are always on the lookout for a good old argument. They are contentious. If they're in a debate, like two people, two believers could be in a debate and they're in it and they're giving it some and they're going for it and they're doing it because they want to get to the truth. A contentious person will dive straight in, not because he's interested in the truth, but because there's a potential here for a fight. Now that is something an elder cannot be. Contentious people suffer from bees in their bonnets. And when elders suffer from bees in their bonnets, you see, the thing is, it's the flock who gets stung. And there is no way that an elder can be a man who is known to be quarrelsome, someone who just likes a good old argument. And let me put a word in here as well. You all know, as I'm, you know, I do and I'm sure that you do, people who just love playing devil's advocate. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter what you're talking about, they will always argue against it. I know Christians, I've heard them argue against somebody on a particular subject. And yet I've heard them argue against someone else who was putting the same yeah. point of view that they were busy. Yeah. Again, these are people they just want to fight. Now you've got to be very careful. People like that, there's no way that they can be allowed to be elders. Right, no lover of money. Bit of a bad translation, ashrokerdes. It comes from the Greek verb kerdes, which means to gain, and the noun ashnos, which means shame or base or impure. And the literal translation of that verse is greedy for base gain. That's one in the AV that's got, you know, sort of greedy for filthy lucre, I think, is that one. But the literal translation is greedy for base gain. So what we have here is that an elder must not be someone who is going to use that position to further their own sinful desires. With the position of an elder comes the potential for abuse. Of course. This is why the Bible is so stringent in the qualifications it outlines. An elder must be someone who is not in it in order to pander to his own sinful desires. Now think about it. I mean, just look around on the Christian scene. What are some of the things that are going on, you know, like through leaders in the church that are, you know, really definitely presenting a bad witness? I'll tell you, money. With eldership comes the potential to make money. And I'll tell you, when you get a church of people put under this teaching that they must give, especially when there are churches who even go so far as not just to insist that you tithe, but they look through your accounts and they set your giving. Now, is it surprising some of these guys are driving around in Mercedes? Because where's all that money going? It's floating up to the top. I'm not saying they get every penny, but they certainly get a fair whack, don't they? Or they wouldn't be driving around in Mercedes. So money, that is one potential. Power over people. There are some people who like to have power over people. Now that is a possible wrong motive for wanting to be an elder. And also prestige. Now I've never found any prestige in being an elder. But you see, the way that the churches are set up, they're set up wrong. It does give prestige to elders. Can you see? They're the yes, sir. 
highly respected. Can you see everyone bowing and scraping? Hey, you've all seen it. I know you've come from churches where it's happening. Can you see anything that is using the position of elder to gratify one's own sinful desires? An elder has got to be someone who is absolutely free of that. The reason being that an elder is not concerned about his desires. He's not concerned about what's in it for him. He loves the people he's leading. Can you see? It's not for him, it's for them. That's the difference. We're going to see that, that, I mean, if you want to sum up an elder, I'll tell you, he's, he's the church servant. He's not there for his own benefit. He will be blessed just by being a Christian in fellowship. But can you see, he's there as a servant. He's not there to get to the top. So at the meetings, there, there they are, the elders up on their platform at the front, so everyone can make sure everyone knows who the, where the elders. No, nothing like that. Can you see? That gratifies sinful desire, and that shouldn't be allowed. So therefore, greedy for base gain, in whatever form it takes, that would disqualify someone from the position of eldership. Now then, we move on to number 13. An elder must manage his household well. Now, that seems fairly straightforward. Let's just look at the Greek, manage, the Greek verb, proistomy. It literally means to stand before. That's what the Greek verb means. And it has two aspects. It's the standing before, firstly, of leadership, but secondly, of attending to, in the sense of looking after and nurturing. All right? So, an elder must be in his own family, leading the family, but in his leadership, caring for his family and nurturing his family. So here, we're seeing that in order for a man to be an elder, he certainly must be in loving authority over his own family. But mark you, not just in authority, over his family, but in loving authority over his family. Now, can you see the difference? I mean, with some men, it's easy to be authoritative. I'm the head of the house, don't you forget it. It's got to be loving authority. But you see, if a man's big boss at home, you know, and the little wifey is just his serf, well, what on earth is the family of God that he's leadering going to turn into? Can you see it will turn into exactly the same thing? And let me say here that one thing that comes across very, very clearly, an elder must manage his household well. This tells us something that is so important it cannot be emphasised enough. An elder, if he is married, must be part of a good marriage, a stable marriage. We saw earlier about hospitality. He's got to be someone who, that, you know, that the, the home is open for people who need to come. Have you ever got to know people well that you start to go and see them, all right, and you're, you know, sometimes you turn up and you know, you know that something's going on. You know that there's been a row. Might, might have been five minutes ago, but might have been two weeks ago and they're still not talking to each other. You can feel this when you go into people's houses. Now, we're dealing with eldership, that cannot be the case with elders. Now, I'm not saying that elders are going to be in a marriage where there is never a tiff, never an argument. But what I'm saying is this, 
In an elder's family, that elder will have long learnt that if someone does turn up and something is going on, that he will, as soon as he hears that door knock, he will drop the fight and he will repent and apologise to his wife. Do you see what I mean? Instantly. Not kind of, oh, I shall finish this later, dear, and then let them in. Can you see? Because the house has got to have the peace of Jesus in. Now that is a, a, a large part of a good marriage. Because how can people be welcomed into a home where the marriage, where the family itself, is not really what you know, Robert would call tickety-boo? Can you see? It's a ridiculous idea. People come into your house when the marriage is, you know, you're all the time fighting like cat and dog, or not talking to each other, or sort of like, you know, major dissension between the husband and wife, a big power play going on between them. No, there's no room for that. But he now moves on to talk about children. All right, that's the husband relative to being the husband. But, of course, many husbands, they have children, don't they? And so Paul deals with this. And he says, firstly, that their children must be submissive. Hupotagi. That comes from hupo, which means under, and tasso, to arrange. And it literally means to arrange in order under. And it's a military term, and it denotes rank. To rank under is the literal meaning of it. And of course, in the family, the father outranks the children. Period. The mother outranks the children. Period. But my goodness, we need more Christian homes where children are actually treated like that, where they do know their place. Can you see? If an elder can't control his own children, if he can't keep his kids in their place, I'm not now talking about unloving authoritarianism, because we've already seen he must manage his household well, he must be loving and caring for his children. But my goodness, he's got to be an authority over his children. If a man can't control his kids, if a man brings up brats, how can that man bring people into maturity in Jesus if he's a leader in the church? Can you see? So his children must be submissive. Secondly, they must be respectful, semnotes. It means in reverence, of, or in reverence and awe of authority. It means that his children must have learned to respect authority. And no matter what that authority is, they're not going to be giving other adults in the fellowship lip, is he? Because they've been taught respect for... In the Greek, it's the opposite of being a rebellious child. So obviously an elder has got to have brought up children who are responding to loving authority and not just sort of, you know, these rebellious children. Not constantly cheeky and answering back. That is to show that the father hasn't done his job. You know, what I'm saying is that an elder's children should not be little upstarts. And the whole point of this is that Paul is saying, if a man cannot lead his own family well, how can he possibly lead God's family, the church? If he's failed in the family, the little matter of his own family, how on earth can he hope to succeed in the Lord in the church? I mean, if you can't deal with kids, how do you deal with adults? 
Can you see what a farce it is? You know, people whose children are out of control and yet they're leading in the churches. And, um, right, okay, that's that, yes. Number 14, not a recent convert. An elder mustn't be a new Christian. Remember last time we saw that the actual meaning of the word elder in the Greek is senior. It denotes maturity. And having a baby Christian is the opposite to having a mature Christian. So therefore, eldership, people in eldership should not be recent converts. The reason is they're just not sufficiently humbled. Can you see? They haven't learned the danger of their own pride. They haven't yet learned the deceitfulness of their own hearts. So therefore, Paul says, you know, sort of people who haven't been Christians long, they're open to every deception going, and the only thing that is going to protect them is remaining in good fellowship with other Christians who are older. So what chance have you got if the people leading are the new converts? You see, every weird and wonderful idea that comes along will suddenly become church policy. The sad thing is that there are church leaders who have been Christians for 50 years who are doing this. But if you put new Christians up there, you really are asking for trouble. They'll just fall into deception and fall into pride, the snare of the devil, and then Satan's got them. And remember, if Satan gets the eldership, he's got the church. This is the important thing. If Satan gets the leaders, he's got the church. But if God has got the leaders, he's got the church. That's the way it works. Right, and then number 15, the last one in this list, well thought of by outsiders. Now, does this mean that if someone's unpopular amongst non-Christians, because that's what's meant outsiders, if someone's unpopular with non-Christians, does that mean they can't be elders? Of course, it doesn't mean that. Paul was one of the most unpopular blokes amongst non-Christians you could ever choose to meet. What it's saying here, well thought of, not popular, but well thought of. And what it's saying is that unbelievers who know this man, this elder, are going to respect him even if they hate him. And believe me, you can hate someone who you respect and hate them all the more because you respect them. Easy. And the point is that even though unbelievers may not like this guy, because of the truth and the gospel that he stands for, the point is that they're going to be respecting him. So it's no use having a man who's an elder, for instance, if his non-Christian neighbours know the truth about him. Do they? It's no use if he's known locally as a bit of a bad character, a little bit dodgy here or there, or like, you know, lose his temper and swear at his neighbour over the fence. That's no good. You see, he's got to be well thought of by outsiders. Unbelievers have got to have nothing that they can pin on him. And that will be true of neighbours, it will be true of him at work, because after all, not all elders are actually full-time. A lot of elders are actually going to have secular jobs, all right? It means at work, they're going to be well-respected. Might not be liked because they're Christians, but well-respected. They know that this guy is never going to take a backhander. This guy is never going to be dishonest in money. This guy is going to declare all his perks on his income tax form. Can you see? It's vitally important. So the point is that unbelievers cannot justly accuse an elder of anything wrong. I.e. to say, well, look, we really know you, and really, you're just like us. You're having the backhanders along with us on the choir. So therefore, he's got to be well thought of by outsiders. Let's go over into the Titus list.
It's basically a repeat. You'll see they're very, very similar, but there are just one or two things that are brought out and this list is worth going through in its own right. So then, the first, this is one, uh, Titus chapter one and starting in verse six, if any man is blameless, we've been over that, all right? We've done that, we've seen what it means, that this blamelessness is defined by the rest of the list. Right, husband of one wife, all right? Well, we've covered that, but here he adds something. The husband of one wife, we've done that, and his children are believers. Now, that's, we haven't come across that. Here's another specification for the young children of an elder. His children are believers and not open to the charge of being profligate or insubordinate. Let's take that to bits, all right? An elder's children must be believers, all right? There's a tremendous emphasis in the Bible on the children of church leaders. Now, we're not now talking about what their kids are up to when they're 18, 19, 20, and they've flown the nest and doing their own thing. We're talking about as their children are being brought up. Can you see their young children, the way they're being brought up? So we're talking here about the children whilst they're at home and under his authority as the head of the house. So then, they've got to be believers. The children have got to be born again. They have got to know Jesus. For this reason, if a man can't lead his own little children to Jesus in their innocence, how on earth is he going to lead adult sinners to Jesus who have no innocence at all? Is he? If you can't lead your children to Jesus, what chance have you got leading anyone else to Jesus? See the point, they've got to be believers. And it says also his children mustn't be profligate, a sotia, and it's literally undelivered. His children mustn't be undelivered. Now, uh, all you Bill Subritsky fans, we're not talking demonology here, I assure you. It's translated riot, riot. That's how it gets translated elsewhere in the New Testament. So children, the elders' children must not be causing a riot. They mustn't be children who are out of control. I mean, I, yeah, you get noise when the kids are around, of course, but I'm talking about riot. I mean, again, you know the difference between children who are just children, all right, they're naughty, all children are, but the kids who cause a riot because they haven't been disciplined properly. Elders' children should not be of that ilk. And then thirdly, they mustn't be insubordinate. Anupotaktosk, all right? And that means not in subjection. It means not subject to rule. It means children who are badly disobedient. All kids are disobedient, that's normal. But we're talking badly. So, can you see? An elder has got to be in control of his children. And if he isn't, the question is not what's wrong with his children. The question is what's wrong with him. All right? He's got to have his children under control. Right, Paul goes on to say an elder mustn't be arrogant or thades. And it's from two words, autos, which means self, and hadamai, which means to please. You've heard of hedonism, self-pleasure. Just enjoy yourself, you know, eat, drink and be merry. Hedonism, it comes from this verb. And it means the arrogance of self-pleasing. Arrogance is someone who is obsessed with themselves. If someone is arrogant, they think that it's only what they think that matters. And they're arrogant, self-opinionated all the time. 
They're people who are kind of, they walk around and, and it's what they think and what they want, you know, regardless of consideration for others or advice given to them by other people. It's the arrogance of men who are immovable in their opinions and outlook. Now, I'm not talking about, obviously, when you know from the Bible that something's true, you're immovable. But these people are immovable, full stop. Never been known to change their minds. Or if they do, they're certainly not going to let anyone know, because they're too proud. They won't say, I was wrong. They'll just change their position very subtly, hoping that no one notices. Can you see? This is arrogant, self-opinionated, and it's because they are self-serving. They matter more to themselves than the people that they are supposed to be leading. So an elder is someone who it's, it's no use them being just full of their own opinion, full of themselves all the time. They've got to all the time be looking to others to be guiding them and advising them. The humility of all the time being open that they might be wrong. The only thing that's required is that it's demonstrated to them from the Word of God. And if they realise that they're wrong from the Word of God, they'll say, oh, I was wrong. Thank you, Lord, for showing me. I'm sorry. Now, that is the opposite of arrogance. That is what elders should be. And if you think about it, elders are not in the church to be pontificating on what I think. That is not what elders are there for. Elders are there to submit to and to teach the Word of God, not their own opinions. An elder should sit very, very lightly on his own opinions about things that are grey areas as far as the Bible is concerned. Right, number four, mustn't be quick-tempered. Orgilos. Orgilos, this is the word we get orgy from. And the Greek word represents anger as being the strongest of all sinful passions. And if you think about it, it is. Anger is stronger than the sexual desire. Because anger is so immediate, it's an explosion. Can you see? I'm not saying that lust is not powerful, but I think you'd have to agree that anger is, as the Bible says it, is the strongest of all sinful passions. And this is where we get the word orgy from. A wholesale selling out to sinful desire. And this word for quick-tempered, what it's talking about is someone who is given to a rapid loss of their temper, rather than the ability to control it. An elder should not be someone who's got a problem with their temper. Now, we know that the Bible says be angry, but sin not. There is justified anger. Anger has a rightful place in life. But the point is this. Jesus got angry, but he never lost his temper. Can you see the difference? <coughs> Being angry can be okay. But if the anger is the loss of temper, it's by definition sinful anger. Can you see? Because righteous anger is controlled, it's directed at something that is wrong. But a loss of temper is out of control. Can you see? Because the person flares up and they've got no control of it. They've lost their temper. So therefore, elders should not be people who are likely to let you have it. Know what I mean? To blow up at you, you know, and sort of tear you to shreds in anger. 
They've got to be people who have victory over their temper. They've got to be in control of their temper so that they don't lose it. Right, next we have drunkard, we've done that. Violent, we've done that. Greedy for gain, that's the same as lover of money. Greedy for base gain, we've done that. Hospitable, we've done that, okay. Uh, now we come on to the ninth one is lover of goodness. So Paul's gone through a load of things he shouldn't be, and now he says something he should be. He should be a lover of goodness. Now this Greek word is philagathos, all right? And philo is the Greek word to love, to love goodness. And what we're talking about here is that an elder is someone who is not out for himself, he's out for that which is good. He only wants to see the goodness of God manifested and brought into situations. He's not looking for his good, he's looking only for the good of other people, even though it might cost himself personally quite dear. He's going to be a lover of goodness. He only wants good things to happen to people. He's not in the job of being an elder so he can manipulate and, and control or anything like that. So he'll be a lover, a lover of goodness. Uh, master of himself, that's so from. We saw that earlier, sensible. So we've done that. Uh, number 11, upright. He must be upright, dikaios. And that Greek word, dikaios, it means given wholly to justice and fairness and an upholder of moral standards. This verb, upright, in the Greek, it means to be right in your character, to be right in your outlook, to be right in your living and in your dealings with other people, and my side including business relationships. This is it. Business relationships, that's where you find out if you're upright. All right? Are you looking for little ways to either get money that you shouldn't have or to keep money that you shouldn't keep? Is he? So in every respect, he's going to be upright in that sense. That by and large, he's right in that. Can you see? He's got that sorted out in his own life. And the best way to think about this is the English phrase we use. It's everything that is represented by the phrase, he's a good and upright citizen. Is he? Totally honest, fair, just, you know, hasn't got it in for anyone. That is what is coming across in this verb. An up, a morally upright person. Now then, number 12, he deals with upright, and then he goes on, he's got to be holy. And this Greek word for holy, it's hosius. And it's quite specifically the aspect of holiness that relates specifically to the qualities of graciousness and truth. That is the specific meaning of this Greek word. Relating to the qualities of graciousness and truth. Just go to John, John chapter 1, the first chapter of John's Gospel just to show you this link between grace and truth. Grace without truth in a lot of bottle, and truth without grace is horrible. John 1, 17, and it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Grace can be translated kindness. Very, very similar in the Greek. And truth a lover of truth, totally honest. We're talking here no deceit or guile. Do you remember when Jesus spoke about Nathaniel? He saw him under the fig tree. 
And he said, Nathanael, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that there was no sin in his life because Nathanael was as sinful as anyone else. We all are. But there was no guile in Nathanael. The point was, Jesus saw in Nathanael a man who, though dreadfully sinful, would be honest when he was convicted. Is he? He would admit it. He would come clean. He wouldn't all the time be refusing to admit the truth about himself. And here we're seeing that this applies to eldership as well. A love of truth ties in with justice also. Holiness is all tied in with the justice of God and an elder is someone who is going to make sure that justice is done. There will be no favourites. Everyone is going to be treated the same. And if someone has been treated badly and unjustly, no matter even if it's his best friend who's done it, the elder won't stop that, won't let that prevent him from stepping in and seeing that justice is done. So what we're seeing here is that the quality needed for eldership is a kindness and an open honesty in all things. Just go to Ephesians, Ephesians 4.15 see one more reference to how these two things are linked together. Ephesians 4.15 and he says, rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. Speaking the truth in love. Now can you see those two things? The truth and justice will be stood up for but it will be done so in love. It will be done so with graciousness. Elders must embody these qualities because these are the qualities that Jesus himself embodies. The law, you mustn't do this, mustn't do that, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, came through Moses. The law has passed away. We're not under law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We are under grace and truth. That is the basis of the covenant that God has made with us. Therefore, leaders in the church must, above all else, be representing and standing for truth and grace. Loving kindness, justice, open honesty in absolutely everything. Right, number 13, he says, an elder must be self controlled, enkrates, from the word kratos, which is strength. And in fact, this is exactly the same word that in Galatians 5, with the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's exactly the same word. And what it's meaning is this. It means that the strength of character and intellect, because we must have it very clear in our mind that God has given you your character, and he wants you to keep it. He has given you your intellect. He wants you to keep it. You are you, and he doesn't want you to become anyone else. But the problem is, because we're sinners, our whole character is shot through with the power of sin, and it twists it, all right, so that there's nothing wrong. If God's given you a good brain, there's nothing wrong with that, but are you using it for Jesus, or are you using it for self? Can you see? And the point about self-control is that his, you know, an elder's character, all the attributes that he has, whatever they are, that they are all being channeled under the guidance and control of the Holy Spirit. Can you see? That he is always keeping himself in check so that it's not just himself running rampant. Can you see? Self-control, everything is submitted to the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. We're talking brokenness here. 
may have a good mind, but it's going to be submitted to Jesus, not dependent on it. Maybe a, you know, a brilliant counsellor, a brilliant listener, but that's all submitted to Jesus, not priding themselves in it. Can you see everything fully self-controlled under the guidance and control of the Holy Spirit? Actions and emotions all under this control of the Holy Spirit, including ideas and thinking. This is the protection from weird ideas. Every idea he has submitted to the Holy Spirit, submitted to the scripture, never daring to give yourself the benefit of the doubt, checking it against the Bible first. Can you see? Everything about him submitted into the guiding control of the Holy Spirit. Right, okay, now we move on to another one about teaching, the fact that an elder must be able to teach. And again, we get a little bit more information than we did in the other list. Let's actually read verse 9 together. He must hold firm to the sure word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict him. Now then, here we have teaching again. We've covered it. He's got to be apt to teach, but there's more detail here. The first thing Paul says is that he himself has got to be submitted to the Word of God. He must hold firm to the sure Word as taught. An elder must be someone in submission to the Bible totally in so far as he understands it at that time. No one understands the Bible 100%, and we grow in that understanding. But an elder must have it very clear in his mind, he is under the authority of the Word of God, and he himself must be submitted to it. So that's the first thing. But secondly, we now see more uh, information here that he's got to confute error. Now, do you remember I said earlier that an elder's got to spot false teaching and correct it? And here we read that an elder must be able to confute error. Now, this is slightly different. It's not just that he's got to be able to spot it and prove it wrong, but an elder has got to know when it is actually the right time to confute error. So what does confute mean? We've done this in the Salvation series. The Greek word is elencho, and it means to expose and rebuke with the idea of bringing conviction that the false idea happened in the first place. Can you see? Now, we're not here talking about honest mistakes. We're not saying that if someone shares something in the fellowship and it's a little bit skew with honest mistake, the elders step in and rebuke them. That is not what we're talking about in the slices. But the time for confuting is when you have people who are willful exponents of false teaching. It's quite clear they've made their mind up no matter what the Bible says. And again and again and again, I have spoken with Christians on certain subjects and I've, you know, spent hours and hours and hours with them, maybe over weeks, months and years. And they've actually come to the point of admitting that what I've said to them is biblical. They admit that, yet they still won't do it. Can you see? I know men in leadership who know that it is wrong to have women in leadership, but they do it anyway. They know it's wrong. They're too busy going with the trend. Can you see? Now, that is a situation where if someone is pushing wrong ideas willfully, then that is the time for the elders to step in and to actually confute it. Because what you're dealing with there is 
the absolute arrogance of people who are not willing to submit to the teaching of the Word of God. Right, there's the lists, or the two lists, of the qualifications. Now, we are not saying in any way that the elder is going to be perfect, and from this list, there's no need to assume that an elder is perfect. But what we are saying, and what the Bible is saying, is that in order for a man to be considered to be an elder, he must substantially measure up to all these things. And I do mean substantially. You see? I'm not saying, well, I mean, this guy, he's pretty good. Okay, he's got a problem with his temper, but he's, he's doing well in the others. Ah, no way. Is he? No way. You don't have an elder who's got a problem with his temper. And I'll tell you why not. Because it's going to be one of the sheep who suffers. Can you see? So we're not saying that elders have got to be perfect, but believe me, they must substantially measure up. They must have victory in their lives concerning these things. Otherwise, you've quite simply got bad elders. And if you've got bad elders, it's the people in the church who will suffer. And the reason that these qualifications are so stringent for eldership is for simply this reason. It is to protect the people in the church from bad elders. You see, that's why these qualifications are here. It's not so that elders can get together and preen themselves because they've passed the qualifications. These are there to protect the people from the elders. And they are also here so that the people, if they see an elder getting out of order in their life in regards to these things, the people can come up and say, now you've got to look at this and you've got to deal with this. Because at this moment you are breaking the conditions for actually being an elder. It's for the protection of the people who aren't elders. It's not to give the elders power. It's for the protection of the people that they are leading. And anyway, what we've seen, all you know, these lists, what does it boil down to? I'll tell you. We've done general teaching about holiness here. What we're looking at here is the fully maturing fruit of the Holy Spirit. As in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, blah, blah, blah. What we're saying is that elders have got to be men who are mature in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Because if they're not, they're not safe to be leaders. Now, notice as well that largely, these things that we've seen, the qualifications to be an elder, they're 90% to do with character you'll notice that we haven't seen any mention of GCSEs, A-levels, or Bachelor of Arts degrees, have we? And in churches today, one of the things that is a sure sign of something going wrong is churches where the elders are all what one would call professional people. Do you know what I mean? The professional people. If a church ends up with elders who are, you know, like it's the bank manager and it's the, the chief accountant and it's the headmaster, and you can go to churches and you'll find it is all the upper middle class people, the professionals who are the elders, that is a sure sign that something is wrong in that church. And I'll tell you what it is, sheer unadulterated worldliness. That is what the world does. The world wants the socially top men at the top of whatever it's doing, doesn't it? Because that brings respectability. 
we must remind ourselves that the disciples were largely, if you want to put them in a social work bracket, they were labourers. They were more labourers than professionals. Can you see? And the point here is that elders are God's choice. You see? God decides who the elders are going to be. It is not man's choice. And when the elders are always upper middle class professionals, you can bet your boots that that is the choice of man, not God. You see, an elder's social standing, his financial position and all the rest of it is 100% irrelevant to the question of being an elder. Whether he's a successful businessman just doesn't come into it whatsoever. Whether an elder is a millionaire or whether he's a docker, there are only two questions that relate. Number one, does this man be meet the biblical requirements? And number two, has God called him? They are the only questions that are asked when it's a question of who's going to be an elder? Whether you're a millionaire, it's fine by me. If God puts a millionaire with a Rolls Royce in the eldership of a church, if that is God's choice and his life meets up to the conditions, no problem. And if God does it with a docker, no problem. But I'm very suspicious when they're all top income people. When there are plenty of dockers and carpenters. Jesus was a carpenter for heaven's sake, not a top businessman. But all the manual workers, there's no, none of them are ever made elders. That's a sure sign that something is very, very wrong indeed. Um, let's just go back very quickly to 1 Timothy, just a couple of things just to begin to wind up here. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, we read this at the beginning, the saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. Now here, Paul is saying, that assuming that motives are right, we've already seen that wrong motives disqualify someone from being an elder, but assuming that the motives are right, it is good to desire to be an elder. You mustn't fall into the trap that if you think, oh, I'd like to be an elder one day, that that is by definition your sinful nature. It might be, but it doesn't mean by definition it is. Because it's a good and noble thing to desire to be raised up to eldership because you are serving people, and that is good. And if your reason is because you can serve the Lord and serve people, then that is a good reason for desiring eldership. It doesn't guarantee you're eventually going to be an elder, but there is nothing wrong in desiring it. And all the time in this fellowship, Robert and I have our eyes open. It's as simple as that. All right. And with all these lists that we've read, I mean, I don't know, perhaps some people might be sitting here, oh, crumbs, that, that counts me out. It might count you out for the time being. It might count you out for the time being. But look, it's no big deal. All we're talking is Christian maturity. We're not talking about some incredibly mega high standard that is just for some Christians. The conditions for eldership are the normal conditions for committed, mature Christians. It's not a kind of a separate layer. We are simply talking Christian maturity, where all of us are clearly, I hope, heading for in the Lord. And it's quite simply this. If Robert and I 
can be qualified for elders, why on earth can't any other of you men here? You see, all we're talking is Christian maturity. The people here who need a little bit more time, but so what? And you see, the point is that as a church really grows into real maturity, the truth is this. I sincerely hope that eventually in this fellowship, because we're a very young fellowship, but I hope that in this fellowship we are eventually going to reach the point where we've got more men who qualify to be elders than we actually need to be elders. Can you see? A surfeit of eldership material. Well, the point is a mature church is going to have lots of people who could be elders, because all we're talking is Christian maturity, but they're not going to be needed as elders because the church has already got enough elders, you see. That is why it's not just a question of does someone qualify, it's got to be the question are they actually God's choice. But the point is that, I say it again, if Robert and I can quite satisfactorily on biblical grounds be elders, there's no reason why any of you men here tonight in time shouldn't be either. It won't guarantee that you will be, but remember the maturity required for eldership is simply Christian maturity. Now there's one other thing that I'm just going to deal with very, very quickly, and this is a preview, because we're going to be back to this in much greater detail, but I've been talking about if you're desiring to be an elder, that, that may well be okay. Might not be, might be your sinful nature, only God can show you that, but it's okay to desire eldership if the motives are right. And uh, so a quick little preview of something we're going to be doing in more detail later, but it came up a couple of weeks back. And it's this, the question, right, um, on how do you know when someone is ready to be an elder? So, for instance, at the moment, we've got two elders. Now, how will we know when other, el other people are ready to step into eldership? All right. And I just want to show you that uh, I think the question was, how will elders be elected? They won't. There'll never be elders elected in this fellowship. Elders will be recognized and appointed. You see the difference? Not elected. They will be recognized and they'll be appointed. Now, in order for someone to be made an elder, there have got to be three things that will kind of merge together. And when these three separate things all meet together and become one, then you know that the time has come. Now, what are the three things? The first one is this. In order for someone to be made an elder, as we've seen tonight, their life must meet the qualifications we've looked at tonight. But you see, the thing is, that that can only be proved to the fellowship that their life does meet that if they've been raised up from the fellowship over months and years. And you see, it's not enough that the person's life meets those conditions. The rest of the fellowship have got to know that their life qualifies. Can you see? And that could only be the case because that person has proved himself in dedicated service to the fellowship over months and years. Can you see? So that is why you can never, ever have the situation where a relative newcomer ends up an elder. Absolute folly. Because how can you know that his life does actually meet up? 
to that requirement. And anyway, an elder has got to be loved and trusted and known by the people he's leading. So there's no question of someone, you know, a newcomer stepping in and then being made an elder. No way at all. He's got to have proved that his life qualifies to the church over months and over years. But that's the first thing. His life will qualify, and that will have been proved by him to the church over a long period of time. Number two, this is the second factor in how do you, you know, recognise if God is raising up a new elder. Number two, the fellowship as a whole will be recognising already that this person is called to be an elder, and uh, they'll kind of be treating him like one quite naturally. Can you see how important that is? That if there's someone who God is raising up to be an elder, and it's God doing it, rather than just people, oh, I think so-and-so should be an elder, or I think I should be an elder. Can you see? We're asking, how do you know if God is raising up an elder? And this is the second point. Over a period of time, as this person proves their life to the church, and if so be, God has called them to be an elder, then the church, people in the church, almost imperceptibly, will start treating them like an elder. Can you see? It will become obvious that the whole church is recognising that this guy is an elder. So there's the second point. It will never be the case that this church has an elder appointed and everyone's saying, you're joking, you're kidding. Can you see? That proves that the appointment isn't of God. The whole church will already be recognising that man's eldership before he's even made an elder. In fact, seeing that the church is recognising his eldership is one of the conditions upon which you find out whether God is raising him up. And then there's the third thing. And it's only when these three things have happened together, eventually, that you know God's raising up a new elder. Because the third one will be this, the existing elders will unanimously know that this guy is the next elder as well. Do you think? Now, when those things come together, then you know that God is raising up a new elder. He's not elected, he is recognised, and then he is appointed by the church that has recognised him as one of the elders in their particular fellowship. Right, okay, we shall be back to that in a bit more detail in later studies. Next time, we move on to look at the function of eldership. That will be next time. We will finish there.